You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Thank you, everyone. If folks can sit down, we'll get going. I want to start by thanking Alistair Spence and Mary Rapp for the music as we pulled ourselves together. Uh, and then I'd like to introduce Uncle Alan Madden, who's representing the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council to offer a welcome to country. Thank you. Once again, my name is Alan Madden, Gadigal Elder. For my first song, nah, nah, only kidding. Not here to lecture you. Mm. Uh, two apologies for the terrible weather we're having outside at the moment. Sorry. And not being able to welcome you to my country and my language, as we've forbidden to talk our language a long time ago. As we've all welcomed the countries, I'd like to acknowledge our Aboriginal elders, all elders, past and present, and pay my respects to all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters. From whatever Aboriginal or island nation you may have come from, welcome to Gadigal. And to all our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters here today, a very warm and sincere welcome to you to Gadigal. No matter where you've come from, whether it be across the seas, across the state or across town, once again, a very warm and sincere welcome to you to Gadigal. And as I've mentioned many times before, was, is, and always will be Aboriginal land. Only three things shorter than that, coming, taxation and going. It's an honour and a pleasure to be here today to welcome one and all of Gadigal. Gadigal is one of 29 clans of the Eora Nation. The Eora Nation is bounded by nature's own, the Hawkesbury River to the north. The mobs up that way call it the Darabin, or the Darkenjung. And the Pian to the west, the Darabin. And George's River to the south, Kaimai. And in between those three mighty rivers is the Eora Nation. And in that nation, there are 29 clans. And the clans land we're on today is Gadigal. On behalf of members of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council and of the Gadigal mob, once again, a very warm and sincere welcome to you, the Gadigal. There's an old saying out there, and I think it's very appropriate for you mob here today. You fellows heard it a thousand times before. They say where there's a will, there's relatives. So once again, on behalf of Land Council and of the Gadigal mob, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you to Uncle Alan, Ma Alan Madden. And on behalf of the Sydney Environment Institute, I'd also uh, like to recognize and pay respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation uh, and their elders past and present. So welcome everyone to this inaugural 
Ian McCowman Lecture, sponsored by the Sydney Environment Institute here at the University of Sydney. My name is David Schlossberg, and I am a professor of environmental politics and director, which is a weird thing to say now, a director of the Sydney Environment Institute. So my task is to uh, give an introduction to Ian, uh, what Ian has done for the university and the Sydney Environment Institute, explain what this new lecture series is, and then introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Francis Flanagan. Um, summing up Ian's career in 10 minutes is kind of ridiculous, and doing all of those things together, uh, it's just not going to happen. So I'll try and be as brief as I can. Ian McCalman is now Emeritus Professor, former Research Professor of History, and the co-founding co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute here. His contributions to history, to environmental humanities, to the university, to academia in general, take up numerous pages of a CV, um, and I'll just mention a few highlights. So Ian, for those that don't know, was awarded the Officer of the Order of Australia for Services to History and the Humanities in 2007. He is a fellow and former president of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, and he's also a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. And I don't think there are that many people that are members of two different academies. And it just illustrates the dedication, at, dedication to and the recognition of Ian's work in multidisciplinary studies. Ian's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, of the Royal Society of New South Wales, um, if there was such a thing of academic royalty Ian would be right there. So Ian has retired or retired at the top uh, of his game. His productivity is legend, only partly represented, I think, by the 14 books uh, in his career, going back um, to the great early work on the radical underground of London through his incredibly important and popular and impactful work on Darwin, and most recently with his very passionate history of the Great Barrier Reef. The accolades are numerous and go on and are well deserved. Darwin's Armada won a slew of awards, including the Western Australia Premier's Prize for Nonfiction. The Reef was simply named one of the best books of the year by The Economist, um, and uh, recognition for The Reef is, uh, has come along in many other ways as well, and I'll actually come back to that. Ian's forthcoming book called The Grass Ceiling, A Human-Animal Saga, is another incredibly innovative work about how two women and an African monkey challenged the male-dominated worlds of big game hunting and science fiction writing. Uh, and I'm sure it will collect accolades and awards as well. So in purely academic terms, the books, the articles, the chapters, the grants, the awards, the honors that Ian has produced uh, honestly honestly add up to you know, more than a few other um, recent retirees in academia. Uh, his incredible scholarship, um, uh, his incredible scholarship and these recognitions are just part of this academic life. Historians have this sort of popular image of being isolated, archive diving sole authors. But one of the things that is really telling about Ian's career um, is his emphasis on this, this broad intellectual and personal generosity, his leadership, his mentorship, uh, and his impact. If you just look through his publications, and th this came to mind the other day as I'm looking through Ian's CV, you'll see contribution after contribution 
by Ian into the edited collections of others. Right? He helps people produce, he helps participate, he puts himself into the edited volumes of others, and he helps bring people together. The most recent example of that uh, is an edited volume on the aesthetics of the undersea, co-edited by our postdoc fellow, Killian Quigley, um, with Margaret Cohen of Stanford. And of course, Ian brought those two together. Ian introduced them uh, and uh, helped to produce this piece. Another look at Ian's CV, and you see the amazing array of advisory boards, steering committees, and expert working groups that he's volunteered for, uh, in addition to the leadership displayed as the director of the environmental or of the Humanities Research Center at ANU, and of course as co-director uh, of the SEI. These roles have shaped many disciplines, have shaped multidisciplinary studies, have shaped the relationship between the humanities, the arts, the social sciences, the sciences, have shaped relationships between the academy and governments, and have had an incredible influence on the academy itself uh, and on public discourse, and not just in Australia, but globally as well. So while the academy is just starting to catch up to this idea that we have impact, and unfortunately they're trying to measure it, Ian shows, and Ian's career just shows how broadly impact can be understood. So the work on the Great Barrier Reef, for example, led to Ian's appointment by the Chief Scientist of Australia to, a ch uh, to chair an expert working group to review Australia's national research priority for achieving an environmentally sustainable Australia. Parts of the reef were excerpted in The Age and The Weekend Australian uh, and a special digital publication of The Guardian, which was quite beautiful uh, and important. Ian did interview after interview after interview on numerous networks. Uh, the reef was cited um, by, I mean, you just don't do this in a career, was cited by both Al Gore and David Attenborough uh, as essential reading and inspirational, right? I mean, that's just, you know, that's the line. Um, the work has also influenced a number of museum exhibitions, inspired a number of conservation campaigns, and all of that only begins to illustrate Ian's impacts on the national and international conversation about the reef, right? And that's after he did the same thing on Darwin uh, previously. And then there's uh, the mentorship, and this is where it starts to get a bit personal, um, but the mentorship of Ian, which is thorough and generous and incredibly productive. Right? Ian cares deeply about the success of students, early career researchers, fighting for publications, fighting for placements. People in the audience have heard Ian fight for placements, for others to value the work uh, that his colleagues do. He puts people on conference panel, includes them in edited volumes and special issues, often co-authors and co-edits. He has this amazing ability to be both a mentor and a collaborator simultaneously, uh, and it's this selflessness and generosity combined. So Ian reached out to me, this is where it gets personal, Ian reached out to me even before I arrived uh, at the University of Sydney at the beginning of 2011. He asked me to be part of a proposal for uh, the very first interdisciplinary environmental humanities group uh, here at the university Ex itself, right, right there, even before I got there, an example uh, of how Ian creates scholarly communities with a diversity of researchers. So because of Ian, the day I arrived here, I was already part of an interdisciplinary community. 
And from that, Ian brought me and a number of others together into a global community of environmental humanities scholars and helped me make connections between my own work, both in political theory and, uh, and public policy, uh, and the work of others in history and literature and cultural studies uh, and more. More pragmatically for the university, Ian has mentored both myself and the deputy director of the Sydney Environment Institute, Michelle St. Anne, as leaders of SEI, as a team that is confident and comfortable with this role of creating an engaged community of scholars at Sydney uh, and in creating a very broadly defined multidisciplinary institute around environmental studies. So in my eight years here, it's been Ian who's offered me the most valuable consul, who shared with me that generosity and that time and that expertise, who's trained me how to lead and collaborate with this broad and vital and engaged community of researchers uh, that he has inspired. Then multiply that by all the people in this room who owe some sort of debt to the mentorship and support and encouragement of Ian McCalman and the impact is incredible. And not just to those individuals, but to the university, to environmental humanities as a field, to the academy, and again, to public discourse on some of the absolutely crucial issues that we face. So it's difficult for me to express how lucky we are at SEI that Ian finished this part of his career with us and how proud I am that Ian describes the development of SEI as the highlight of his career. Together, our team defines what a broadly multidisciplinary environmental uh, studies institute can be, what it should do, and how it can encompass a broad range of academics uh, and the public. Most of the initial affiliates that started with us five years ago are still attached to SEI, and of course we've grown to a family of over 65 scholars here at the University of Sydney and elsewhere. And again, that just demonstrates this inclusivity uh, and how rewarding an engagement it is to be part of what Ian has helped to build. So all of that is just as a background to explain uh, why it is that we are honoring Ian tonight. It's not just about retirement. It's not just about a send-off. It's about how we honor that work and how we continue that work. So what we mean to do with an annual Ian McCalman lecture, um, of which this is the inaugural event, uh, what do we mean to do with this? In short, after all that Ian has done for the Sydney Environment Institute, for the university, for the environmental humanities, um, and even for his home discipline of history, we really wanted to do something special, again, not just to mark his retirement, to, but to, uh, to mark his impact. And of course, like so many of the best ideas at SEI, this specific event and this annual lecture series uh, that'll be a core event in SEI's calendar from this year forward is the brainchild of our incomparable deputy director, Michelle St. Anne. Michelle wanted this series to reflect Ian's career and focus on the one hand, but also to highlight in particular early career researchers who represent, as Ian does, work that crosses interdisciplinary boundaries, that aims to impact both scholarship and public discourse on key environmental issues. And we think it's a very fitting tribute to Ian and to the scholars who embrace this difficult but crucial, crucial space that he's helped to forge.
Now, of course, that's not an easy task to fill, and we are incredibly fortunate tonight to have our speaker uh, for this inaugural Ian McCalman Lecture. Dr. Frances Flanagan has just begun her role at the University of Sydney as a, as a fellow, uh, as a University of Sydney fellow, which is the most prestigious position for early career researchers at the university. She will be based for reasons that will become obvious in the discipline of work and organizational studies in the Sydney School of Business, as well as the Sydney Policy Lab, while she continues to be a long-standing affiliate of the Sydney Environment Institute as well. Between 2015 and 2018, Frances was the National Research Director at United Voice, one of Australia's largest unions. She trained as a historian at the University of Western Australia and at Oxford, and has been a senior scholar at Hertford College at Oxford, the Royal Historical Society Marshall Fellow at the London Institute of Historical Research, uh, and a researcher at Birkbeck. She's the author of the book, Remembering the Revolution, Dissent, Culture, and Nationalism in the Irish Free State, which is Oxford University Press, and numerous articles on the subject of work, technology, gender, and social change. Now, the topic tonight is absolutely key to a broadly interdisciplinary approach to our environmental crises. It's part of one of our key interests at the Sydney Environment Institute, uh, part of one of the key interests that we have around how we have to change the very practices, the very actions, the very flows of everyday life as we create more sustainable systems. And what Francis gets at is the very nature of work itself and the reconfigurations that are necessary, that are as necessary as other transformations uh, in energy systems and land use in conservation and other policy areas. So the program tonight is pretty straightforward. We'll hear from Francis first, and then Ian himself will give a response to Francis's talk. And afterwards, of course, we invite everyone to join us in the back where we'll have some refreshments and drinks and toast both Ian and Francis. So it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Francis Flanagan to deliver the inaugural Ian McCalman Lecture, Climate Change and the New Work Order. Thank you, David. It's obviously an enormous honour to be giving this lecture in Ian's name, and I'd like to begin by sincerely thanking SEI and the University for the opportunity to do so. My talk tonight is about the environment and work. It's about why we so often imagine these matters to be separate and how they might be better woven together, both in our imaginations and in our politics. It is about how taking the long view on work can help us, even when time is short. My argument, put simply, is that we simply cannot achieve a sustainable society, one that exists within safe planetary limits, without reconfiguring the way we organise and value work. And that such a change would, in turn, make work more interesting and secure and our society more equal. Now, public conversations about the environment frequently begin with stories of epiphanies and awakenings. And I'd like to begin tonight by sharing mine. 
It took place on the carpet of my primary school classroom on the outskirts of Perth one hot afternoon in 1989. Now, I don't remember the name of our teacher, but he was memorable for his large moustache and his lessons on bush survival skills. Now, these included the welcome advice to carry around a packet of jelly crystals in your pocket, so if you got lost, you could eat them directly from the packet. Now, that day, he wheeled in the audio-visual trolley, which was a magisterial beast. Its heavy grey industrial frame housing a vast television, stolid block of heavy grey plastic and glass with dozens of cords coming out the back. Its heavy entry into the room was heralded with squeaks as it rolled over the sand-flecked carpet and it was a portent of good tidings. For we would not have to work at our desks in the post-lunch double social studies period. We would be allowed instead to watch TV. Now, in the semi-darkness that afternoon, I learned three new concepts for the first time. The greenhouse effect, depletions in the ozone layer, and peak oil. And while I don't remember the documentary's title, it included a graph that I will never forget. It was a lime green line, and it was superimposed across an image of the Earth. And it was charting the rise of global surface temperatures from 1960. Now, the line went up and steadily up, fading into an ominous red as it approached the 1980s. Now, there was no violent uptick at the end, like the hockey stick graph in an inconvenient truth 17 years later. And nor did the line end in the splayed fronds of the shared socioeconomic pathways, like the IPCC report 28 years later. It nevertheless made a deep impression on me. It was clear from that line that we were all going to have to do something very urgently to make it go back down again. Now, with an imagination fertilised by stories of the Vietnam War protests and student uprisings of 1968, and the Australian kids' TV show, Secret Valley, which, if you haven't seen it, involved plucky BMX-riding teenagers in a koala-filled valley doing battle against greedy real estate developers week on week. And the slogan to think global and act local, I did the thing that was obvious to do for a child in 1989. I started a local group with a grandiose name. We were to be known as PEACE which was actually an acronym for People for the Environment and Conservation Everywhere. And we had a concrete immediate objective, the elimination of non-recyclable polystyrene cups from the school canteen that were being used to serve out chicken soup at lunchtime. Now, if this was a different kind of talk, you would now hear me trace a narrative arc that goes like this. We came together and we made demands. And despite initial setbacks, we gained an understanding of the power of collective action. We came to realise that the cups were just the beginning, that there was a whole food, plastics, industrial complex that was choking the land and the oceans, and by learning the arts of speaking truth to power and organising strategically, we realised we could change the world. But this is not that talk, and besides, that is not what happened. Instead, the school principal acknowledged our concerns and said gently, yes, but how else are we going to keep the drinks hot and safe? And we said, we weren't sure. And peace dissolved soon after, our immediate <laughs> short and long-term strategic aims unmet. And my nascent environmental consciousness was channeled elsewhere into checking hairspray and deodorant cans for CFCs. 
into not complaining too much during the school tree planting program, and in applying sunscreen and wearing broad-brimmed hats with renewed authority and vigour. But this is not a simple tale of dissipated personal resolve. The thing is, I didn't lose interest in the global temperature line or stop thinking about it. Indeed, I did what I was socialised to do. I grew up. Now, in 1990s Australia, this meant devoting attention to a different sort of line. One that wasn't written down or public, but was rather in my own head. My private line of personal progress. For I had been raised in the slipstream of the post-war golden age, an indirect beneficiary of a set of educational, industrial relations and social security policies that had enabled my father, who had grown up in a poor family school, Without, and left school without a high school certificate in the 1940s to move into the middle class in the 1960s after half a lifetime spent working as a cleaner and security guard. Significant changes were underway in the Australian economy in those years and they were ushering in a new order that was quite different to the one that had so vertiginously elevated my dad's income and expectations. But what was in my teenage head was a melange of beliefs from an earlier time, an awkward and undigested blend of Fordism, the Protestant work ethic, Keynesianism and second wave feminism. What seemed obvious to me, so obvious it didn't even need saying, was the idea that hard work, delayed gratification and education were reliable fuel for an upward trajectory in life. That upon obtaining the requisite good marks at school, and then uni or TAFE, you had a ticket, a ticket to work that was simultaneously interesting, useful, and entailed more complexity and responsibility as you got older. And it earned you enough to buy a house, to have a family, and to retire comfortably. Moreover, I took for granted that this was a deal that applied to everyone. It wasn't a special offering made to a chosen few with superabundant energy or talent. It was to citizens. It was to all of us. Now, unlike the global temperature line, the determinants of this private progress line felt wholly within my control. They nestled comfortably in the fabric of my everyday life and conversation. The line was there, inchoately, in conversations with friends about things like what uni subjects to choose, what essay topics, what jobs to apply for, where to live. Yet, as the 1990s flipped into the millennium, the so what are you going to do next conversation took on a more anxious edge. It gradually became clearer that the pursuit of work that was one, socially useful, two, interesting, and three, reasonably paid, was not so much a singular endeavour, but rather a competitive and strategic puzzle. You couldn't have all three, or rather four, for we women um, had the matter of how to fit in children, and that seemed to be a matter that was left for us to deal with alone. Now, tribes began to quietly coalesce around different strategic approaches to the dilemma. Those fortunate enough to be buoyed with parental wealth seemed to have an easier run, not only at achieving two, three, or more of the prize quartet, but in taking risks to get them, backed by a sense of entitlement and the knowledge that their family could bail them out if needed. For those with less cultural and material capital, who were from non-white backgrounds, 
who lacked perfectly working bodies, or did, who did not conform in terms of sexuality, gender, or in other ways, the task was harder. Our horizons were shorter, and the rules, which seemed so self-evident at high school, had the habit of melting and morphing without explanation every time we tried to play within them. Now, as I was navigating these questions, that other line, the global temperature one, did not disappear from my consciousness. Indeed, as I learnt more about our environmental predicament, it weighed heavier on me. As I came to know about the 8.3 billion tonnes of plastics that coat the land, oceans and internal organs of everyone in this room, as I learnt of the 56% of major aquifers in the world that are being drawn down faster than they can be replenished, as I learnt of the soil degradation wrought by industrial agriculture that is so severe that by some estimates England has just 60 harvests left, as I learnt of biodiversity collapse that will see half of Africa's birds and mammals extinct by the year 2050, as I learnt of these things, my worry about that line and the vast entanglements of tipping points and feedback loops that sat behind it, my worry grew more intense. But if I'm honest, it occupied a different universe to that personal progress line. It existed in the realm of wise consumer choices rather than work. It was the line I had in mind when trying to decide whether to ride my bike or drive in assisting me to take my reusable bag rather than use a plastic one, in encouraging me to buy a keep cup. It was the line that related to stuff and its management, to superego rather than ego, to the things I was supposed to say no to rather than the grand existential puzzle of what to say yes to. Now, conversations with friends about the climbing red line and what it meant were awkward to have and they didn't seem to last for long. Now tonight, I want to think about those two kinds of lines and their relationship and how we might bring them together. But first of all, let's ask, why do they seem so separate? Now, there are many answers to that question, and one cluster of them, I think, lays in the way that we presently talk about work and its future. And that's the ones I want to speak about now. We can, I think, observe a number of genres in the way we talk about work today. First, the just transitions narrative. Now, this is a compelling response to the specious argument that you can have jobs or the environment, but not both. It observes that 24 million jobs worldwide will be created by 2030 by virtue of renewable industries, comfortably eclipsing the estimated 6 million jobs predicted to be lost from the cessation of fossil fuels. And it argues, quite rightly, that it's crucial that workers currently involved in the latter group be offered fair support to transition into these new industries or into other work. But it generally frames the transition we face as a relatively narrow one. It's something akin to flicking a switch from one energy system to another. And it concerns the justice of conditions for the relatively small fragment of the workforce that is directly concerned with that. So I think of the just transitions narrative as being the, we can shift to renewable energy and not much will change, don't worry, narrative. Second is the digital disruption story of work. Now this narrative foretells unimaginably vast changes to present configurations of work. 
Automation and digital technology are breaking down jobs into tasks, replacing many of them with machines. Now, a tone of gleeful inevitability tends to accompany this narrative, often paired with an insistence that technological change has invariably led to a net jobs gain in the past, and it will do so again. So long as young workers do not fall into the trap of pursuing old-fashioned forms of rigid credentialisation and training, and no one holds back on investment in technology, it will be okay. So I think of this as the everything will change, but don't worry as long as you're flexible narrative. Thirdly, a more pessimistic narrative of work may be found among the heralds of the precariat. For the first time in history, they argue, we have a generation who, despite high levels of educational attainment, are forced to work in careerless jobs with no ladders of mobility to climb. These are people with, to use Guy Standing's chilling phrase, no shadow of the future in their working lives. They are detached from any positive occupational identity or sense that what they do or say today will make any difference to their fate tomorrow. They are the new dangerous class, frustrated, insecure, indebted and stressed, ripe for seduction by the politics of xenophobia, populism and nostalgia. I think of this as the everything has and will continue to change and you should definitely panic narrative. And fourthly, there's a story that's more pessimistic still, if that were possible, in which panic gives way to elegy and lamentation. Most commonly associated with the writer Paul Kingsnorth and the Dark Mountain Project, this narrative suggests that humans have created an all-consuming global industrial system that is effectively unstoppable, that will simply run on and on until it runs out. At its base are a set of toxic myths, the myth of progress, the myth of human centrality, the myth of our separation from nature. All that can be done is to challenge these myths with counter stories and privately pursue lives and work that sits outside industrial systems. All political and policy responses are fatally contaminated. Now I think of this as the catastrophe is in the DNA of modernity, withdraw, mourn, and try to do no harm narrative. So, four quite different narratives, just transitions, digital disruption, the precariat, and the dark mountain. They share, however, a few common logics. The first is determinism. Now, each of these, and with the exception of just transitions, I'll put that to one side for the moment, each of these carry the sense that we humans have little agency in the question of how work is organised and valued, and instead that there is some other force, unchallengeable by us, that will set the terms of our future, be it technology, neoliberalism or industrial capitalism. What each has in common too is the implicit dismissal of work as a viable stage upon which we might collectively struggle for a better system. Indeed, these narratives carry little optimism that any alternate social order will ever be possible at all. Now, if we historians know nothing else, it is to be skeptical of determinist forces and absolute endings to historical periods. And it probably won't surprise you to hear that I think that these assumptions are premature. I think that if we're in 
inclined to look, there are signs all around us of an appetite for an alternate social order. We can see it. We can see it in the streets full of children on strike for the climate. We can see it in the burgeoning New Deal movement in the US. We can see it in the non-GDP measures of progress that are coming to be embraced by national governments. And we can see it in the language of circular economies that are starting to be heard in businesses and governments all over the world. And just as it is premature, I think, to give up on the possibility of a new social order, so too I think it is hasty to abandon work as a political site from which to fight for it. For there is a crucial link that is perhaps not very obvious, well, sorry, it is perhaps very obvious, but it's not often made explicit, in the idea of sustainability that lies at the heart of modern environmentalism and work. And it is this, that the process of sustaining requires human labour. It means more than saying no to damaging acts of consumption. It also means saying yes to human activities that are positively necessary for the repair, renewal and regeneration of our soils, our oceans, our cities, our critical human systems and our human bodies. It means looking on such work as more than an afterthought or a non-core aspect of the real business of production, and it means viewing it and treating it instead as utterly elemental. Now that work of stewardship and renewal is obviously not new. I mean, it's been at the core of every ancient human society. It's happening now, right now, day and night in Australia. What's historically variable and most significant for our purposes is not its presence, but its value and the economic, social and cultural frameworks that we offer to support its performance. And here, I'd like to share some snapshots with you from around the country of how we, in Australia, currently organise and value that work. In Perth, there is a carer who works in a residential care home who thinks that no one should die alone. There is no funding for palliative care supplies at her work, and so she runs a raffle to enable her to buy the supplies she needs, like moisturiser to put on the lips of people in the last days of their life when they can't make their mouths wet anymore. Most days, she works for more than an hour without pay. She has never been paid more than the award for 43 years, despite the additional qualifications she has acquired on her own time and with her own money. The time she gets to shower and toilet each person she cares for is approximately six minutes. In Arnhem Land, there's a Kuninju man at an outstation who used to burn his country according to customary practice. Now his burning meant that the hot fires that feed off uncropped grass were less common and they eased the destructive pressure on the native species exerted by feral cats, cane toads, pigs, cattle and other animals. His work was part of a hybrid sustainable economy that included traditional hunting and fishing, arts and crafts and state transfer payments. Since 2015, government policy changes mean that he now must engage in work-like activity, which does not include caring for country, for 25 hours a week on an hourly rate of $11.60, 
well below minimum wage and without standard industrial protections. He has no time for burning now, and the Kuningu hybrid economy has all but disappeared. In Brisbane, there is a woman who loves to care for and teach young children, whose wage is so low that she cannot afford to have children of her own. In Hobart, there is a security guard who worked in the state's court complex and whose name was known by every employee and regular user of the building. She had a low, quiet voice that was capable of soothing the most intimidating of offenders. She offered support to domestic violence victims. She offered solace to the parents of young offenders. One day, 21 years after 21 years of work, a man in Melbourne working for the service multinational company who'd taken over the contract, who had never met her, decided to turn her position into a casual one. She could not pay her mortgage on such uncertain wages, and she was forced to leave. In Perth, there's an engineering graduate who wanted to work in renewable energy manufacturing. Despite top marks, he was unable to get a secure job in that field, while others in his cohort found jobs in the oil, coal and gas industries, earning on average $180,000 a year. In Launceston, there is a school cleaner who would hear the confessions of primary school children. Window smashers, shoplifters and runaways would seek her out after school and tell her of their deeds. Once a little boy even showed her a mouse that he had stolen from a pet shop. She built trust with them, acting as a source of stability in the midst of often very turbulent family lives. And she helped them feel less alone, guiding them gently back to school and to adults that they could learn from and trust. Now, because she worked in a state where school cleaners were directly and securely employed, she was able to work this way until retirement. But in New South Wales, where such work is outsourced, her colleagues must meet punishing productivity metrics, have far less job security, and are quite required to work split shifts that mean they have virtually no time to meet the students. One school cleaner there, whose name was well known to everyone on school grounds, equally as her friend in Launceston, remembers the week that her job was outsourced. It was the week that people stopped using her name. And instead, anonymous notes addressed to the cleaner started to be taped to objects instead. In rural New South Wales, there was a regenerative farmer who knows how to read the landscape. His measures for success are the levels of animal health, species diversity, and nutrient and water cycling on his property. The soils on his farm are healthy and resilient. But to get them that way, he had to painstakingly unlearn everything he was taught about best practice farming over two decades. In Sydney, there is a home carer who buys toilet cleaner for her elderly clients on the sly. She isn't paid to discuss cases with her colleagues or mentor or train less experienced staff or get any peer support. Instead, she and her colleagues meet at the one place where there is space, air conditioning and easy parking, McDonald's. Her manager has told her not to get too close to clients, but she goes to their funerals anyway. In Adelaide, there is a junior humanities academic who gave birth to a human being. She is devoted to her discipline and the maintenance of an intergenerational conversation about the world through reading, writing and teaching. 
For years, she worked as a casual, taking more than her allocated 45 minutes per student per term to give careful feedback and teach as well as she could, while doing research on her own time in the hope of securing a permanent job. With a child to care for, she could no longer afford to work for free, and she has now left the sector. Now, these stories are all true. They're all based on the lives of real people, many of whom I came to meet in the course of my work at United Voice. And each of these people does work that is the opposite of what David Graeber has termed bullshit jobs. They bestow daily the thing that Simone Weil has described as the rarest and purest form of generosity, namely attention. These are the people who strive to do the things that need to be done to perform the work that is essential to maintaining our mutual home. Their work is environmental. And I do not mean this in the narrow sense of being low carbon emitting, although it is that too. Nor in the sense that it boosts biodiversity, although in some cases it does that too. I say it because their work is centrally concerned with processes of human and non-human regeneration, and in particular with fostering social cohesion, trust, civility, and a sense of order, of education and passing on learning about how to live wisely and within limits. For no society can simultaneously exist within environmental limits and be a democracy that does not possess an abundance of these things. Now let's reflect on the conditions for their performance of work. Their work is overwhelmingly performed against the odds. Their jobs lack pathways in and pathways up. Most are not held within a secure career structure that enables them to reliably progress over time and in seniority nor are they paid adequately to, to comfortably afford those social markers of life progress, a house and a family and a secure retirement. They are rather expected to trade off the meaningfulness of their work for material security, status and self-development. For many, their daily work is often frustrated and interrupted by management processes that are ill-suited to their labour. They must contend with rigid, tailorous grids, competitive frameworks, productivity metrics, repertoires of control and efficiency that derive from industrial factory contexts that have been thrust into vocations that have, for millennia, followed the tempos and cyclical rhythms of human and environmental need rather than the dictates of the clock. Many, if not most of these workers, live under the shadow of a glaring mismatch between the status of their work in terms of pay and security and the social value it creates. For we reward and support the stewards of renewal far less generously than we do the stewards of extraction and consumption. It's not just that investment bankers, advertising executives and accountants who advise the super wealthy on tax minimisation schemes destroy seven to ten dollars of social value for every dollar they contribute, although they do, according to the New Economics Foundation. It is that the personal progress line of such people in these occupations start high and they're set up to rise, whereas those of the maintainers are left flat. Now, no element of this work order is necessary or inevitable. 
point is not that these workers are victims. Far from it. In fact, most of the people I mentioned are actively organising and agitating in their workplaces and unions to make their conditions of work better. The point is rather that there's a deep perversity in our current order of work, which does not furnish the people who are doing the things that are most crucial to a flourishing planet and society with the means to flourish themselves. Now, as Australians, our obligations in responding to environmental crisis are, I think, particularly acute. We are one of the wealthiest and most technologically capable nations on the planet. We are among those most blessed with renewable energy. We are also one of the highest per capita emitters in the world. And in the tiny 12-year window that we have left to make rapid, coordinated and decisive cuts to our emission levels, the Australian government projects our emissions to rise rather than fall by 5.4 per cent by 2030. And to put our current priorities in clear focus, the IMF has calculated that Australia spends 1.96 per cent of its GDP on fossil fuel subsidies. That is almost four times the approximately 0.5 per cent of GDP we spend on early childhood education and care. In other words, for every public dollar that we spend building a future for our younger citizens, we spend nearly four dismantling that future. Now, there are powerful historical and geographical dynamics that lead to those damning numbers. Our nation was one of several to follow a settler capitalist trajectory that was premised on the brutal displacement and destruction of indigenous lifeways. In a sparsely populated continent, colonists relied heavily on extractivist pastoral and mining practices, which became the dominant elements of an undiversified British export-centric economy. With colonisation too came the importation of a highly gendered conception of public and private life that consigned the work of social reproduction to women and systematically excluded it from the economic sphere. But just as Australia's history can be blamed for our present inertia, so too, I think, it contains the remarkable sources of inspiration for how we might meet the challenges that we face now. We can learn from religious, cultural and kinship structures that enabled Indigenous people to live on and tend to the land sustainably for millennia and to pass on knowledge of how to care for country through the generations. We can learn from the ideas that underpin the creation of some of our key national institutions at Federation. The philosophy that underwrote the conciliation arbitration system, for instance, was entirely predicated on a set of principled arguments for working out where competitive markets belong and where they don't. It rested on the notion that our economic system should be in service to a higher purpose, the development of people as full moral and social beings. And it insisted that that development cannot meaningfully happen unless the industrial relation is regulated and then there is active fosterance and nurturing of the commons. Now, in the early 20th century, that meant building public parks, public transport, infrastructure, art galleries, public libraries, and today we might add the creation of institutions devoted to the repair and protection of living seas, wetlands, ecosystems, rivers, soils, as well as our digital infrastructure. 
We can learn from the expansive ideas about what work was for and could be that prevailed just one generation ago. In the mid-20th century, it was widely accepted that work was not simply a means to economic productivity and profit. It was also a source of self-realisation and development, a path to engagement with wider society, a basis for the participation in the substance of life. These were a bunch of ideas that uh, the sociologist T.H. Marshall called social citizenship. And those ideas don't die in the absence of a 40-hour, factory-based, one-job-a-career kind of paradigm. In fact, they're more relevant today than ever. We can learn, too, from the fact that we have done this once already. 100 years ago, the basic determinants of your working life the things that had the greatest bearing on your occupation, on your salary, on your ability to work at all, were your gender and your race. Not your skill, not your level of education, not your capacity for hard work, not even your class, although it goes without saying that Australia was a deeply class-divided society. Women and non-whites were explicitly excluded from the employment conditions and protections that were offered to white men. And it's worth remembering that imperfect and incomplete as the process was, we dismantled that system of formal discrimination in the final third of the last century. We overhauled the fundamental elements of our work order. Now, it didn't happen spontaneously. It required decades of pressure from communities, unions and civil society. And it didn't happen all at once. It required decades of legal activity, changes to awards, industrial legislation, new, new laws, statutory authorities. But it did happen and it radically transformed the life chances of more than half the people in this room in ways that would have been unimaginable a century ago. And finally, a sense of history can aid us in understanding why so many ostensibly powerful people seem to feel so powerless to do anything about our current crisis. Like many developed nations, Australia has embraced a passive conception of government one that confines itself, as Mariana Mazzucato has recently observed, to doing little more than merely fixing market mistakes, levelling the playing field and getting out of the way. Now, in obedience to this idea, we have consigned great swathes of the work of renewal, including the care for our eldest and youngest citizens, to the for-profit market, handing responsibility to firms who necessarily operate within a financialised system that mandates short-termism, risk-shifting, debt-loading and lean labour costs. Now, such arrangements are not only unjust, they're also the product of historical anachronism. They represent the misplaced application of ideas that were gestated in the context of the Cold War in response to a centralising, statist, planning-obsessed Soviet enemy that no longer exists. They are institutional arrangements that come from another age. They are not the ones we need to deal with these fragmented, warming and increasingly unequal times. Such times, I suggest, demand a new work order. An updated social contract for our warming world that recognises anew that the purpose of our economy, and thus of work, is to facilitate the flourishing of our living systems. It is not to furnish markets, capital, GDP, or any of the other human inventions we have devised as synecdoches for advancement with raw material. 
The renewed social contract I have in mind is one that says that if you are doing useful work, and especially if you are doing the essential work of stewardship and renewal of our life-giving systems, you will be rewarded with the status, salary and self-development opportunities to enable you to fully develop your capabilities over your life course. You will not be left to knit together the elements of a full and flourishing career on your own. Now, this is an idea that is relevant to everyone. It spans manufacturing as well as service sectors. Now, as a side note, there is no such thing as a service-only economy. Manufactured goods will always play a part. But we have a choice, though, in whether the stuff we make contributes to or detracts from the project of reducing carbon emissions and enriching biodiversity. But it also spans public and private sectors, men and women, migrants and non-migrants, young and old, professionally qualified people and those without formal credentials. For not only does the work of maintenance and renewal encompass all of these categories, we all benefit from it, whether we're doing paid work or not. Now, in an earlier version of this speech, I tried to write a laundry list of policies that flow from this idea, and it was long enough to fill five lectures, so I will spare you that. But in the few minutes I have left, I'd just like to highlight a few key points. We can't think technocratically. The new work order cannot be implemented as a top-down project. It entails building upon and linking up the vast numbers of us already engaged in renewal and stewardship work, or in education and training to do it, and the community organisations, unions, environmental groups that support them. And as a side note, the numbers involved here are staggering. So healthcare and social assistance, the largest and fastest growing industry of employment in Australia. The aged care workforce alone is projected to multiply by three and a half times by 2050. And it means linking them too with the young people who have been so let down by the current broken social contract. Now there will be struggle there are, after all, more than a few powerful stewards of the old make, take, consume, dispose order who will see no reason to simply surrender their status. But I think we need to start to see certain habits, practices and fields of expertise that are associated with that short-termist, non-reciprocal corporate extractivism. I think we should start to see them as being a bit akin to occupational stranded assets. So just as certain bodies of fossil fuels simply have to be kept in the ground, I think these ideas for how to run a society, they need to simply stay in people's heads. Now, technology must be a servant and not a master. It is absolutely crucial to contest this idea that somehow technology determines the value of and organisation of work rather than us. And in particular, this idea that it is gigs and tasks that comprise the natural units of work rather than relationships, careers, and domains of knowledge and practice. Now, of course, it is essential that we are not nostalgic. Digital capabilities and networked orders must be at the heart of our repertoire in thinking about how to reorganise and value work. And there aren't any easy models here that we can just take off the shelf. We need to devise new digital systems that genuinely support workers that enable them to act collectively as well as individually and enhance the creativity, autonomy and collaborative possibilities of work. Now, I think it can be hard to imagine what these might look like, especially when our mental models are so shaped by the extractivist, surveillance-based platforms like Uber on the one hand or the highly voluntarist crowdsourcing sites like Wikipedia on the other. But I think of how exciting initiatives are like the Atlas of Living Australia, 
a national, publicly funded, free resource that brings together the stewards and students of biodiversity into a dynamic of co-creation. This includes people from university experts to citizen scientists to school children to community organisations. This is not mindless, amoral digital disruption. It's mindful and ethical digital construction directed at forging a common foundation for knowledge to enable environmental repair. And we must re-examine too our assumptions about what counts as low and high skilled work in light of what we know about the complex needs of human and environmental systems. These ideas are currently stuck in a circular logic that ties status to levels of pay and credentialisation and effectively bakes in the undervaluation of caring and relational work. Now, just because a sector of work has been low status and highly fragmented for a long time does not mean it's not possible for it to be remade. For tasks to be rebundled and put back and put together in a way that makes jobs better. This is precisely what has happened in the Netherlands with a social care model known as Burtzorg. This is a project that has seen low status, low pay work transformed to become in which it work is higher skilled, more creative, better paid, more autonomous and more rewarding. And the reason is because it was reconfigured around the imperative to nurture relationships rather than to execute tasks as quickly as possible. And finally, we must move fast. As the American writer Alex Steffen has succinctly put it, winning too slowly is the same thing as losing. Now, the new work order will not displace existing environmental imperatives. We must continue to insist on a rapid and deep transition to renewable energy, reduce pollution and consumption, and the eradication of fossil fuel interests from politics. But it will augment them in, in crucial ways that enable people to weave together the great work of social transformation that falls to us into the shape of their everyday lives. Now, my generation will be the last to have a climate epiphany. My daughters are growing up always knowing that their world is careering towards a destructive path. They know it. They know it in the same way that I grew up knowing about the First World War and thinking with indecent arrogance that somehow if I had been there, I would not have been involved in something so silly and pointless. Now, my hope is that by the time they grow up, they will see as grotesque the fact that we, knowing about climate change, once paid our brightest young people handsomely for coming up with ingenious ways of flinging people and objects around the planet as frictionlessly and profitably as possible, while at the same time practically impeding the work of those engaged in renewal and repair of the world. They will look on that as unimaginable and horrific as the militarist logic that saw 57,000 British casualties on the first day of the Somme and insisted that young men get up the next day and go over the top to be slaughtered all over again. Now, of course, like any parent, I hope their little lines of progress rise. I hope they find occupations that are useful, that are interesting, and that nourish and nurture the people and places around them. And as every parent knows, I can't do that for them. But what I can do, and what all of us can do, is to fight for a system that does not impose impossible dilemmas on their slim shoulders. 
We can remake our work order into one that does not insist that they have to choose between work that renews the world and work that is materially secure. We can create a system that offers them a stake in a deep and expansive environmental politics that is not just about what they do or don't buy, but that yokes together their private lines of progress with that other great line that so determines and marks our collective fate. We can make an order of work that cuts with the grain of their ambitions, their loves and their talents and encourages them to weave these into a common social project, one that they will fight for when we are all gone, the nurturance of life and the flourishing of our common home. Talk about a hard act to follow. Um, I'm going to speak for a short while, and really I'm going to say thank you. Thank you to Francis for an amazing talk, and thank you to some other people in SEI as well, if we can join that together. So I don't have to tell all of you here that we've just heard a very special lecture. Most obviously, because of its intellectual originality, its rhetorical power, and its social significance. From now on, no serious student, scholar, or activist who cares about environmental change can afford to neglect the critical importance of human work. Francis has shown us five crucial new things. First, Immense benefits come from viewing environmental change and the formation of work as entwined and inseparable challenges. Secondly, efforts to achieve an economic system generally, genuinely designed around regeneration and renewal will rest on work being done by human beings sustainably, abundantly, and with dignity and fairness. Thirdly, all over Australia, there are people who exhibit the rarest and purest form of generosity. They strive to do work that is environmental because essential to the human systems that are a precondition of sustainability. Fourthly, that there is a deep perversity in our current order of work that places so many impediments in the way of people performing work that is crucial to a flourishing society and planet. And fifthly, she's given us a manifesto for a new social order, the kind of way in which we can change this world, we can change those preconditions of sustainability. We're also privileged to have you as our first speaker for this annual SEI lecture, partly because you are a perfect exemplar for those that will follow in the future. Despite the lecture's ridiculous title, we did not want it to be given by, 
privileged, sen privileged senior white male professors like McCalman himself. <laughs> but rather by an early to mid-career scholar who will contribute to our understanding and solution of the urgent environmental and social challenges of our time. Francis has done this profoundly and in limpid and evocative language without a single word of jargon or pretension. But in the remainder of this response, I'd like to switch to a more personal perspective, if you'll indulge me, and to reflect on some particular ways that Francis's lecture and career resonates with me and mine. Poor thing. <laughs> of course, as a male, I've always had career advantages that weren't available to Francis. Nevertheless, now that Francis's academic career is in its very springtime and mine in its senescence, we seem to have journeyed along some similar unorthodox trails and perhaps for related reasons. David has told you that Francis has already made a glittering contribution to her academic career with an acclaimed book, Remembering the Irish Revolution, published by OUP in 2015. It's a superb book of political history and a luminous analysis of Irish literary and cultural memory. My guess is that Frances was moved to explore this subject by her own background and social experiences. Having chosen to make her academic career in Australia initially as a historian of modern Ireland, however, I'm also guessing she encountered a dearth of opportunity. Certainly all my PhD students in Irish history have had to work abroad. Many years earlier, my first book focused on the literature and political culture of British working class revolutionaries, a topic generated in some oblique way by my guilt at having grown up as a very unrevolutionary white boy in the British colony of Nyasaland. Later, I also wrote and taught Irish history, having discovered that McCalmans were once Ulster Catholics who migrated to Scotland. There, I fear they demonstrated a craven opportunism that would have done well in these Brexit days. A McCalman was caught looting before the Battle of Culloden and promptly joined the English. There you are, Mrs. May. Although I entered the university workforce in 1972, I didn't find tenured work in British and Irish history until 1988. And not before I'd worked really as a hack for four different universities, teaching courses on political philosophy, mass culture and communication, comparative race relations, and everything else except British history. France's lecture also hints at another frustration that I've shared. Although we belong to different generations, as would be very obvious, um, I suspect that Francis too was influenced by Joan Byers and Bob Dylan telling us that the times they are changing and that we should be contributing to that change. I recall how much Francis was torn, was agonised really, some years ago between pursuing her academic dream and working as research director 
for the United Voice Trade Union. She chose the latter, as you've heard, and she has, as a result, helped a wide range of workers living on the margin. And those include, in large numbers, cleaners and carers, exactly those undervalued and underpaid people whose crucial work of repair and regeneration she described so movingly tonight. And there's absolutely no doubt, too, that Francis' intellectual work has substantially enhanced the stature and heft of United Voice as a trade union. My analogous action during the 1970s was, I must confess, informed less by Francis-type idealism than by a, a generous dollop of self-indulgence and pseudo-romanticism. For a few years, I became a bourgeois hippie in the Victorian countryside, where, with the help of friends with real skills, I hand-built a mud-brick house and garden. Lurking dimly behind all this narcissism, however, lay shards of longing to live a simpler, more sustainable life, to find a place amongst a diverse community of people who might value the kind of person I was. This fantasy lasted only a few years, but I never completely lost a desire to redeem my past by trying to do some tangible social good. But as Francis pointed out, there are other important sources for hers and for my environmental turn. She observed in her talk that the convergences between history and environment have usually come about through awakenings and epiphanies. And she gave a vivid and witty example of her own as a Perth schoolgirl in 1989. I shudder to tell you how old I was in 1989. I suspect there have been other awakenings since, but uh, time and tact precluded her from talking about them. Time and tact also precludes me from discussing all my environmental awakenings, even though one prime source is here tonight, in the form of Charlie Verin, the Darwin of coral science, who's thrown his body and soul into being a steward of the Great Barrier Reef, which he knows to be under terminal threat. Thank you, Charlie, He's in the crowd here, but I'll spare your further blushes. Yet I couldn't retire from the university, nor complete my song of praise to Francis Flanagan, with also, without also telling you something about the people and the institution that brought Francis and I together. I've experienced my most ardent environmental awakening here at the University of Sydney between 2011 and today. During those eight years, I was awakened first and foremost by David Schlossberg and Michelle St. Anne, two co-founders of SEI. Later, this was amplified again and again by our small cadre of fourth-year honours students, all of them shared with other disciplines, PhDs and postdocs, and particularly Killian Quigley, Brigitte Sommer, Genevieve Campbell, and Kate Johnson. SEI was built, however, on the incredible hard work and creativity of a multi-talented group of staff. Marie McKenzie, Eloise Federplace, Liberty Lawson, Anastasia Mortimer, and Gemma Viney. 
They were generally and generously assisted too by the generosity of the staff of Sophie and the School of Government, who look after us even though we must seem, I fear, like cuckoos in their nest. Over this time, I was personally also sustained and supported by wonderful friends and leaders in the Department of History in ways and to a degree that I can never repay. They're too numerous for me to name. My greatest debts, I suppose, are to Mark McKenna and Mike McDonnell, Kirsten McKenzie, Chris Hilliard, Penny Russell, and Shane White. Most importantly, we in SEI have had the essential support of a score or more of selfless and idealistic scholars who are scattered throughout this room. Collectively, your work spans most of the disciplines of this university. You've helped create a scholarly community unlike anything I've known in 53 years of university life. You are a unique collection of unpaid volunteers whose common concern for the environment transcended all the enormous difficulties of navigating the university's disciplinary silos. Yet SEI could neither have come about nor survived without the practical support and protection of senior university leaders, Duncan Iverson especially, but also Stephen Garten and Laurent Rivery, as well as a splendid group of fast deans. Garten and Iverson in, in the early years and more recently, Barbara Kane and Anna-Marie Jagosi. I've been told by cynics that the collective noun for deans is a dire of deans. But in this case, it's a distinction of deans that we've been lucky to have. Now, two SEI promises to be strengthened by the skills of Uber Administrator Kimberly De La Cruz Odom and by collaborations with new multidisciplinary centres like the Sydney Policy Lab led by Mark Steers and aided by a stellar new recruit in Dr. Francis Flanagan. This is not the place to tell the story of SEI, and David has done that very eloquently. But I say to all of you who've contributed how much I admire, I love, and owe you all. I will, however, close by mentioning briefly two most essential people. The two most essential people of the SEI story. One is our director, David Schlossberg, arguably the leading environmental social scientist in the world, a dear friend whose knowledge, patience, tolerance, hard work, generosity, and strength of principle cannot be overstated, and whom I'm certain will lead SEI into a future world. Thank you, David, for all those wonderful and over-the-top things you said about me. The other is our indispensable, indescribable, inimitable deputy director and co-founder, Michelle St. Anne. How do you describe someone who's both embodied and delivered every single aspect of SEI, including our connection with Francis Flanagan? Michelle is a brilliant theater producer, actor, researcher, writer, and teacher who translates and disseminates our environmental research so that it reaches entirely new publics. She personally created our environmental arts and performance node. She is a policymaker, advisor, 
media and communications genius, engagement and impact pioneer, event manager, administrator, intellectual incubator and master collaborator. And finally, she is a person with all the traits that Francis has spoken of, who exhibits the rarest and purest form of generosity because they strive to do work that is environmental because essential to human systems that are a precondition of sustainability. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, David. And thank you, Michelle, and your fantastic team for all your effort and the work of love that has gone into it. I'll never forget it. Thank you very much.